Hi, this is Ron Hogan, and you're listening to Life Stories, a podcast series where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. And my guest today is Beverly D'Onofrio, and she has recently written her third memoir. It's called Astonished, a story of evil, blessings, grace, and solace. It is published by Viking, and I'm delighted to see you again, Beverly. I'm so happy to be here and see you again. The last time that we met was about a decade or so ago. You had just published Looking for Mary, and you were on tour talking about that book. And I was rereading that interview earlier today, and I was struck by how we ended up talking about what it was like to sort of go on the road and go public with your devotion to the Virgin Mary at that time. Mm -hmm. And it seems like here we are again a decade later, and you know one of the things that we can talk about about Astonished is that feeling of going out on the road and going public again, but in a different way and with different things. Let's talk a little bit about the beginning of the book and an incident that it's not really the kickoff incident for reasons that you, that you describe, but it does sort of establish a flag that we could plant at the beginning of the narrative to, mm-hmm. to start talking about what happens to you on the, the journey that you write about here. Mm-hmm. Well, just as I had decided that I needed to join a monastery to give significance and meaning and wonder and sacredness to my life, a rapist appeared in my bed at one o'clock in the morning and woke me up. He was a serial rapist. I was living in San Miguel de Allende. I was his fifth victim. And so launches Astonished, where I contemplate what it means to have a loving God and there be evil in this world. For me, the tragedy in the middle of my life was getting raped. For other people, it can be, you know, getting cancer or losing a loved one or a child or an unexpected death. And what do you do when suffering and pain and disruption enters into your life. And I thought, I knew from experience that this was an opportunity, that an opening would happen. Basically, I lost, I realized that I am not in control. It's kind of like, almost like a death experience. It's like, I am not in control. I'm never in control. I will never be in control. None of us are. And so what do you do with that? And what do you do when a bad thing happens? And basically, love, great love and great suffering are pathways to God, to spirit, to deepening, and I used it as that and went off to the monasteries where I was headed anyway, but boy, with a much more charged agenda, I think, and the rest of the book. So the first chapter is the rape, and the rest of the book is the spiritual journey I go on. I want to emphasize that. It's come up a couple of times in there, but just so everybody is clear, this retreat was not so much a reaction to having been raped. I mean, you had been thinking about this before the rape had happened. I had been search hotly searching on the internet for two weeks straight obsessively for a monastery that might take a woman who would have to leave to visit her grandchild. And I was bookmarking and I was writing down charism statements and I was off. I was going. I was going for six months to see to get a, a feel of the lay of the land, to see what these places are like, to see if any place would ever accept a person such as me. One of the things that came up as you were searching out these religious communities that you started asking yourself and and working within yourself to to resolve is, as we said at the beginning, in the process that you described in Looking for Mary, you became very devoted to the Virgin Mary. Mm -hmm. But as you write about it here, it's like your relationship with her son was not quite as close. And grappling with that relationship is something that happened over the course of 
of this path that you took. Absolutely. It, it was something I hoped would happen and I wanted to happen. Mary always says, or people say of Mary that she brings you to her son, she leads you to her son, and it just never happened with me. I had great prejudices and from my childhood. I did not want to feel guilty for because Jesus died for my sins. I thought that what kind of an icon is this, a diapered figure suffering on a cross? I just did not resonate with me. But boy, did Jesus enter the picture. And early on on the journey was the second monastery. And I did, I practiced Lectio Divino, which is, I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it, but it's monks have done it for ages where you imagine yourself into a biblical scene. And I imagined myself into the scene where he's awaiting his crucifixion the next day. He knows it's going to happen. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I felt such tenderness and love and an opening. And then soon after, a presence, a loving presence. And then I started studying and reading mystics and reading theologians and make, forming a different opinion of who Christ is and what Christ's message was than the one I was told when I was a child. You describe it in the memoir as literally you sort of felt him about like, you know, a half foot behind your shoulder. Yeah. That he was standing there. Yeah. And I loved how like you're telling one of the nuns the day that this happens, you're telling her about this and, and she's like, and where is he? And you're like, over there. And she's like, yeah, that, that's right. Yeah. They said, which shoulder? <laughs> which shoulder? <laughs> <laughs> said the right side. Said, And she nodded. Yes, she knew. Yeah, I, I think the way I describe it is it's like being in a dark room and you sense that your friend is standing right next to you. You just know it even though you can't see it, see this person or hear this person. And it's, and it's still here. The presence is still here. It's never gone away. It's huger than just on my right shoulder now. It's just kind of like God is a lover. God is not a punisher. And that's why to go to God, to feel loved, to be loved, and to love back, and to learn that whole dynamic and to spread it around. As this was happening, as you were essentially checking out these five monasteries and retreats that you're checking out, you write that there was this point, and I think it's like right after Jesus turns up at your shoulder, that you write, you had never felt closer to God than at that moment, but at the same time, you had never felt greater fear in your life right. than at that moment. And that combination was really striking, and, and part of it was a prolonged reaction to the trauma that you had been through. I think that great pain opens you up. I mean, the, the darkest darkness may be, somebody said, the darkest darkness may be a light so bright it's blinding our weak eyes. I was terrified. I was, I was experiencing PTSD, basically. I would awake in the night believing that there was a man in my room after I woke up. And there was no, I was not rational. And it soon, it, you know, after waking up, I, I would be able to calm myself down and know that this was not, true, but I had this fear that evil was kind of knocking at my door. Yeah, I needed to counter that with a whole lot of love. As you were touring these places, what were the main qualities that you were looking for that in the end led you to choose the place that you did to attempt your retreat? You know, honestly, a place where I could cook for myself. 
I really do not like to have to eat what other people cook. I don't want to, so this, and I love being alone and I love being silent. And this place I would live in, and I did live in a tiny little hermitage all by myself with two burners and a little refrigerator. I was a hermit. I could be a hermit and I had permission to be a hermit. And I realized it's all I ever really wanted to be, at least for, to maybe forever. I don't know, but I'm kind of thinking I'm not, I, I have to go back out in the world and I am back out in the world, but it was just my cup of tea. I mean, I'm a writer. Pretty much you have to be a hermit to be a writer. And at the same time, as you were formulating this plan, you realized that it's like, well, okay, I want to be a hermit who gets to go out and visit her family every couple of months. Exactly right. I could not give up my family. and it was, So I was never a true, true non-contemplative monk, whatever you want to call it, because I always had my own agenda. As you mentioned, you know, one of the things that attracted to you about being a hermit is your writerly life. And... Talk about very early on making the decision to write about the rape in San Miguel, first as a magazine article, mm -hmm. but then eventually, of course, it, it turns up in here. And it was a way of, not just of processing those emotions for yourself, but originally, of course, it was a, a way to, to share that experience with others and to, for them to be able to, to benefit from your experience. Yeah, well, when when I was raped, one of the first, after the rapist left, one of the first things I thought was, I don't want to tell anybody. I don't want my son to know. I don't want my family to know. I don't want the world to know I was a person who was raped for the rest of my life to be seen that way. But very soon, you know, within a minute, I thought, no, no, that's ridiculous. You have to report the rape. And soon after that, I realized, wait a minute, I didn't do anything to be ashamed of. The rapist did, and I'm not going to not talk about this. So right away, I thought, I'm going to publish this in O Magazine one of these days, and that happened probably within a year. But when I was going off on to the monasteries, I made a promise to myself that I would not be taking notes. I would not be taking notes thinking I'm going to write about this. I knew since I'm a memoirist, I most likely would, but I did not want to compromise the experience. I wanted really to truly be just about me being close to God, whatever that meant. And uh, it's kind of like the difference between going on a vacation without a camera or going on a vacation with a camera. So I'm, I can't help but write. So I would take notes now and then, but I didn't really start writing about this aside from the Oprah piece for two and a half years, almost three years after the rape. Mm -hmm. Having, as you said, not really taken a lot of notes other than here and there, mm -hmm. because you wanted to experience the experience mm -hmm. without that mediation. Mm -hmm. When it came time and you made the decision that you were going to do this and write about this, what was it like to go back and reflect on this experience that you had had? Well, you know, the hardest part about writing this book was conceptualizing the whole thing. I had written about the rape for O Magazine, and now to write about it in a different context, in a larger context for a book, it was hard to then set what I already wrote aside and write it afresh. That was really probably took me three months to break through what I'd already written. And what I'd already written was basically just documentation. I mean, it was just, this happened. He said this, I said this, this happened. So to make it artful and to give it a shape and, and a point of view and the voice, and, you know, that was the big work of this book, that first chapter. 
as we had mentioned at the very beginning, when I met you in the Looking for Mary years, you know, we had talked a lot about the reaction that people had in terms of you speaking very openly about this devotion and faith and the sort of like skeptical secular reaction to this. There's a scene in Astonished where you're, you're looking back at the book tour that you did for Looking for Mary and meeting some old friends of yours in Los Angeles. Oh, right. It's funny, they come up to you and they say, we heard you became a born again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, we heard you're a born again. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of freaked me out because at that point it was just Mary. And Mary was easier to for my palate mm-hmm. because Mary is a mother, Mary is a woman, she's beautiful, the feminine face of God, she's kind of cool. But to be a born again, that means you're in love with Jesus. And I, it, I didn't deny Jesus, but... I didn't embrace him either, and I certainly do not like being called born again. And it feels like, you know, just in the short time that we've been talking already, that there is a lot less hesitancy within you about opening that up and letting it out and sharing it with people. Well, I just feel like it's kind of my calling. I mean, it has just changed me, changed my... I am a born again. I mean, if it means that you're born afresh and everything is different, I mean, I look at everything differently. I'm just different, and it's so much more peaceful, and it's... uh, I'm just in such a better place than I ever was in my whole life, and, you know, I like to share how I got here, because other people may be able to use some of it. And you know what? And if people think I'm a nut or they are going to cross me off their list because they want to call me a Jesus freak or a born again, well then, okay. And we should clarify too, because it's a very specific term, at least as it's commonly used, that mm-hmm. born again tends to refer to a very specific type of evangelical. Mm-hmm. Whereas you have come to this reawakening and this new spiritual life within the Catholic Church that you were grown up in. Yes, but with many arguments against the dogma. For example, I do not buy that we were given free will and we created evil and that God is all perfection. I think if there is evil, in, I think God is everything. God is everywhere. I mean, you can, it's like this, uni, God is the universe. And if there's evil here, there's evil in God. And if God did indeed create the whole thing, then God created evil. But who's to say what? evil is and what's good and what's bad and it kind of goes back to my first book when I said I quoted Hamlet nothing is either good or bad but thinking makes it so so I mean the rape was good or the rape was bad I don't know what I know is what came of it is a wondrous life so maybe the rape was good how do we know we can't know there's a scene where shortly after this happened you're talking with a friend of yours in San Miguel who had known one of the earlier victims of the serial rapist and who had this attitude very much that, oh, things happen to us to teach us things. Right. And your reaction at the time was, well, what do you think she was supposed to learn from that? Mm -hmm. And then after it happened to you, you ran into him, and you know his reaction was, I don't know. I I don't know why that happens to you. And it's like, Mm -hmm. what you're saying now is that you don't know either, but look at what has happened in the wake of it. Right. And I think everybody has that opportunity if, to grow from pain, to take it and use it to go deeper, to learn something. I mean, 
I'm trepidatious saying this because my experience was not that horrible. It was a two-minute rape, basically. People have horrible things happen, brutal, unbelievably terrible things, and I don't know how I would respond to that. I do know I would try to find the grace in it, the good in it. I don't know if I would be able to, but I would try. As you were on the retreat, what were some of the aspects of the monastic life as you were living it you most enjoyed or that were least satisfying to you or or most frustrating, perhaps? I most enjoyed the silence and the solitude and the expansiveness of time to really delve into spiritual reading I was doing. Uh, I was in nature. I was in beautiful places. It's really easy to find God in nature. The challenges when I had to be with people. I mean, I'd have to be nice all the time. You know, you're, one is expected to see Christ in everyone and, and just and be hospitable and just drop whatever you're doing. And I just found that really hard. I was a curmudgeon and then I was mad at myself because I couldn't do the right thing. And so that was a little difficult. You mentioned that you were doing a lot of spiritual reading mm-hmm. during this period. What was some of the reading that stood out most for you and was resonated the most with you? I loved Brother Lawrence. He was a simple monk in the 1600s in France who was a, a soldier. He was illiterate. He was he worked in the kitchen, and he had a tactile relationship not not tactile a relationship with God in which. He spoke to God all the time. God was his pal. God was his companion. And then uh, Teresa of Avila, I just, I love her. I don't know. She's this hyperbolic, amazing woman. And, oh gosh, Thomas Merton and Bede Griffiths. And I know I'm forgetting. Oh, Evelyn Underhill has this beautiful little book called practical mysticism and it's really short and it's almost like a handbook. And I used it kind of to, as a, practical guide of how to go deeper. It's kind of mystics do what poets do. They look beneath things. They look beyond things and you have to go slow and you have to be contemplative and you know, savor. And she helped me do that. Another thing that we had talked about back then was the way in which looking for Mary seemed to, among other factors I'm sure, kind of jumpstart the healing of your relationship with your adult son. Mm -hmm. And there are scenes in Astonished that show how that healing has progressed in the decade since. And there are also some scenes in here that hint towards a similar kind of healing, not so much with the memoir's existence itself, but in the things that happened that you're writing about, a healing in your relationship with other family members as well. I think particularly your parents, it seems. Although... There's still you know, some tensions there as well. Mm-hmm. My mother passed away in July, so it was good to uh, have her that long. She was 89 years old. Um, and, yeah, uh, in the book, she has, in real life, she three times ended up in the nursing home after the book. And the first one was she had a massive heart attack. And it was really quite something to have my mother have 30% chance of living and and see her through that and then watch her, this happened after the book, go through rehab with 
emphysema three times, lifting weights. And I thought, my mother, I would always be calling my mom, oh, my poor mother, my poor mother, my poor mother is like, like a dynamo. I had no idea. So that was pretty great. And my father and I are contentious as ever, although not so much anymore now that my mother's dead, because he's suddenly he wants to engage. I mean, she always did it for him. He'd always be there, or maybe he didn't have enough room to engage. But, you know, it's great. He actually is interested in what's going on, and I, like, tell him things, and we have conversations. He laughs a lot. He thinks I'm a riot. It's great. There was also an interesting reaction among some of the family that you write about in here when you decided you were going to enter the contemplative life. There was this kind of skepticism, you know, oh, Beverly's going to go be a nun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, they were kind of like, well... What? What are you? Why aren't you wearing the outfit? Are you really a nun? Because I did. I took my own vows. I wrote my own vows, and I considered myself a nun for that first year. And so, I mean, rightfully so. They were saying, "So, how are you a nun? Who says you're a nun?" They've really been terrific. Do you see yourself writing another memoir down the line, exploring more about the longer-term effects of this transformation? It's possible. Uh, sure. I mean, right now I'm thinking of writing essays as they come up. Living a life of spirit is just really a great subject. Well, we will look forward to those essays when they come out, and if they ever get collected into a book form, I'm sure we'll be talking to you about them as well. I'm Ron Hogan. This has been Life Stories. I've been talking to Beverly D'Onofrio about Astonished. It's published by Viking. I encourage you to go look for it, and I hope you will look for another episode of Life Stories soon. Thank you.